Well, if God is so good, why is there so much bad? That's the big, the big question before us today, and I don't think they get much bigger, really. If God is so good, why is there so much bad? Uh, suffering and evil and bad are such ever-present realities in our world and in our lives that almost inevitably we ask, why? Why does it happen? Why doesn't it stop? I mean, if, if we Christians are right that God is so good, why is there so much bad? Why does God allow it? Why doesn't God do something about it? Big questions, no doubt about it. And of course, they are really uh, merely intellectual questions, are they? They're, they're really questions you ask because you just want to find out some information. It's a question that's often asked in the midst of pain and hardship and grief. It's an emotionally charged question. It's an intensely personal question, which all of which really presents a great difficulty for me today because uh, in talking about this question, I don't want to be insensitive to any particular suffering or sadness that you might be feeling uh, right now or experiencing right now. But as I speak to a group of people like this, it's impossible for me to deal uh, with each each person here personally. In fact, if I was having a conversation with you about these sorts of things, I'm sure I would do far more listening than speaking. But uh, that won't work too well in this sort of format, will it? It'll, it'll get a bit weird if I just listen a lot. <laughs> I need to speak. But I, I, just, I want you to know that I recognise the danger I'm in and I need to apologise in advance um, about that because with such a big, profound, personal question... I don't want to give glib, shallow answers because the Bible never does that. It certainly never does that. In fact, the Bible is very upfront about the fact that there is much that is mysterious and unknown about suffering. There are unanswered questions about suffering. In fact, the Bible does not give a specific reason for each person's particular experience of pain. But the Bible does provide, I believe, deep and powerful help in actually facing suffering and facing it with hope and courage. And so what I would like to do with this this morning is I'd like to try and point us in the direction of some of those things, some of that deep and powerful hope and help. And of course, I'd be more than happy to have a personal conversation later if you'd like, and I promise that I will listen more than I speak. If you look on the inside of your bulletin, you'll see an outline of the talk, which basically is showing you the sort of ideas we're touching down on. And the first thing you see, there is no God, because really one possible answer to the question of fitting God in with the reality of suffering is simply to do away with God altogether. One possible way forward here is to see all the bad in the world as evidence that God could not exist. No God. It's not a hard argument to imagine, really. It goes something like this. Look, if God is all-powerful, he'd be able to end all suffering. And if God were all-loving, he would want to end all suffering. Suffering exists, therefore an all-powerful, all-loving God cannot exist. Seems a neat argument. It's tidy. However, it's got a really big flaw in it. It's got a big logical problem because that sort of thinking ignores the possibility 
that an all-powerful, all-loving God actually might have a reason for allowing suffering to continue. It, It might prompt us to ask some really hard questions of God, But suffering in the world doesn't necessarily mean that an all-powerful, all-loving God uh, doesn't exist because he might allow it for a particular reason. Although I need to say that uh, for those who believe that there is no God, then really suffering isn't a problem at all. It just is. Uh, It's just a natural part of the way things are. And so a famous uh, modern atheist, a man by the name of Richard Dawkins, who's the author of many books, including the most recent, I think, best-selling book, uh, The God Delusion, he wrote these words. I'll put them on the screen for us. Richard Dawkins wrote this. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky, and we won't find any rhyme or reason for it nor any justice, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. That's the response of atheism to suffering. Suffering just is, okay? It's expected. It's not right or wrong. It's not good or bad. It just is, Now, I don't know about you, but for me, I don't think that fits really with reality. I think all of us instinctively know that suffering is bad and that pain is wrong. That's why this question is such a big question for us, because we know suffering does matter. Injustice does matter. Pain does matter. And it's interesting that for another older famous atheist, a man by the name of C.S. Lewis, who's the author of uh, lots of books, including the Narnia Chronicles. For C.S. Lewis, as an atheist, it was precisely his despair at the suffering in the world uh, that led him away from atheism and toward a faith in God. That's interesting, isn't it? Because he said, though, he had an argument against God. His argument against God was that the world was so cruel and unjust. But then, you see, he wondered where he had even got the idea of just and unjust and fair and unfair. Where did that idea come from? What could he compare it to? And C.S. Lewis recognised that as an atheist, he had no reason to complain about suffering, and yet he knew it was wrong. And so in the end, he rejected atheism as too simplistic. Atheism just doesn't work doesn't match our experience of reality, doesn't match our instincts about the way life should be. So could it be that God is good in spite of the presence of bad? And that's the idea I want us to explore next by looking very quickly and briefly at the message of the Bible. Because as I said earlier, in the Bible, we find great hope and great help as we think about this question. I won't have all my questions answered, but I do find great hope and great help, and I'd like, to, uh, I'd like to take just a few moments to share with you what I mean. So if you're following on that outline there up to point two, the hope and help found in the Bible, and I guess most people, whenever things go wrong in their life or in this world, tend to point the finger at God and to blame him. It tends to be the way it works, doesn't it? When things go wrong, what's God doing here? But in the Bible, you see, the beginning of suffering, the source of suffering, The genesis of suffering 
can be found not in God, but in us. That's certainly what the Bible teaches in its first few pages. And of course, that matches reality very well, doesn't it? So much of the pain and suffering that exists in this world, in fact, is the direct consequence of human decisions and human actions. We lie to one another. We mistreat one another. We are greedy. We are disloyal. We break our promises. We are lazy. We gossip. We murder. We are ruthless. We are selfish. We are immoral. We prey on the weak and the defenseless. We take moral shortcuts. We cheat. We. So much of the pain and the suffering in this world is the direct consequence of human decisions and human actions, our decisions and our actions. And you know what? The most fundamental of those decisions, according to the Bible, is our decision to go it alone without God in this life. And so in the very first book of the Bible, a book called Genesis, the book of beginnings, we can read there the account of the grim arrival of suffering and death and bad into creation. And you know what? It's a human decision. It's a human action to go it alone without God. Because the Bible tells us the creation was good. It was very good. It was, a, it was peace and harmony. It was relational harmony. It was spiritual harmony. It was environmental harmony. It was beautiful. It was good. It was the sort of existence we long for, even now, deep in our souls. But in the midst of that perfect, peaceful, pain-free creation... Humanity made a decision to go it alone without God and the results were catastrophic. It's the famous story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, eating the forbidden fruit, choosing not to trust God but to go it alone, trust their own instincts. And as soon as they ate, spiritual harmony was shattered. As humanity turned away from God and rebelled against his good and loving rule in judgment, They were cast out of his presence. Spiritual harmony shattered. Relational harmony shattered too. Whereas before humanity existed in perfect peace, now there's fighting and conflict and selfishness and pride. And you know what? Even environmental harmony was shattered. Because when humanity rejected God's rule, when humanity pushed God aside... All of creation was affected. It was cursed. It bears the scar of this chasm that has opened up between humanity and God. And so now death and disease and disaster are commonplace in our experience. But none of it belongs. None of it belongs. It's all part of what the Bible calls the groaning of creation. Groaning of creation. And you can hear it in the tsunamis and earthquakes and drought. Creation groaning because things are fundamentally not right. Things are not right between humanity and God. Things are not right between humanity itself. And so things are not right in the whole of creation. And so, friends, if you find yourself watching the news or, and, and seeing yet more stories of starving children or abused children or international violence or corruption in the courts, or bushfires, or floods, or murder. And if you are deeply troubled by those things, if you are angered by those things, the Bible says you are right. You're right. Richard Dawkins would just say, it just is. But the Bible says, no, you're right to be angry. You're right to be troubled by it. If you have been struck by tragedy, 
If you have a deep conviction that things ought not to be this way, if you find yourself yearning for change, yearning for something better, if you are convicted that there is something profoundly wrong with this world, the Bible says you're right. And God mourns with you too. And God is angered too. Last week, if you are here, we considered some differences between religions. And those differences can be seen uh, really clearly in the, in the way different religions respond to suffering. For example, Buddhism teaches that suffering, that in fact is an illusion that we can escape by simply removing desires and affections from my life. The Bible disagrees. Suffering is real and it must be faced. Hinduism teaches that every single instance of personal suffering is the direct consequence of someone's evil. It's karma. When disease strikes a person, when a family loses a child, when tragedy occurs, it's a direct consequence of someone doing something wrong in this life or a previous life that has upset the balance. And so now they suffer as a direct consequence of that. The Bible disagrees. The Bible teaches the world is so botched by human rebellion against God that suffering can be indiscriminate and seemingly random. It sweeps across all people as all of creation groans. The Bible describes the reality of suffering and the broad sweep of suffering and it explains it as the consequence of human rebellion against God. Now you might be thinking, hang on, Paul, you promised hope and help. And it's hard to spot it so far, isn't it? It's a bit like the plumber that turns up and says, well, hey, you've got a blockage in your pipe, and then uh, packs up his truck and leaves. It's an explanation, but it's not much of a help. Well, fortunately, you know, the Bible has far more to say than just that. Because you know what? Although humanity might very well have rebelled against the loving rule of God, God remains the loving ruler of his creation. And he is good. And like any loving ruler... He will not let such a destructive rebellion continue. He'll act. He promises to act decisively and finally to bring suffering to an end. And if you turn to the beginning of the Bible to to, uh, read about the beginning of suffering, it's not hard to guess where you turn in the Bible to see the end of suffering described and explained. So let me read you some wonderful verses from one of the very last chapters of the Bible that describe the end of, end of suffering. And uh, I've put them on your screen. It comes from a book of the Bible called The Revelation, the last book in the Bible. And a fellow called the Apostle John got a vision of the end and he wrote it down. This is what he saw. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, For the old order of things has passed away. That's a future worth getting excited about, I reckon. The end of all bad. The end of all suffering when everything bad will become untrue. A broken 
and messed up creation renewed and transformed. It's fantastic imagery. It's describing something so good that it defies our imagination, really. Every tear wiped from the eyes of the people of God by God himself. No more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. For the old order of things, this order, the messed up order of things, in that, in that moment will have passed away. And there'll be a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth. No rebellion, none of the scars of our rebellion. A perfectly good, harmonious, peaceful eternity for people to enjoy. If God is so good, why is there so much bad? Well, God is good and he's committed to his creation and pain and suffering and evil and death have a very limited shelf life. There is an end to it all. However, before we uh, too eagerly demand that God bring all of that in now, we need to be aware that in order to bring in the new creation, God must first deal with this old one and he must do it with justice. And so, in fact, immediately before the good news of that picture of the new creation, immediately before that, in the last book of the Bible, is the bad news of the picture of God's justice. Let me show you. It just comes immediately before those other verses I had up. John says, Then I saw a great white throne with him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence. There was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. That's a picture of the judgment of God. Uh, those verses are the answer to everyone who has ever cried out to God for justice. Those verses are the answer to everyone who has ever cried out to God to act against wrong. Those verses are the answer to everyone who has ever cried out to God to bring evil to an end. And God's good, loving answer is to hold every guilty person accountable for every wrong they are guilty of according to God's perfect standards and God's perfect knowledge. And on that day, you see, in the future, that final day, the living and the dead will stand before the throne of God and the books will be opened. So, friends, if you want murderers held accountable, you can know that God will one day punish the guilty. If you want pedophiles held accountable for their acts of evil, you can know that God will one day punish the guilty. If you want drunken drivers or abusive parents or war criminals or suicide bombers held accountable, you can know that God will one day punish the guilty. But please know this too, that God will also punish liars and gossips and greedy people and selfish people and adulterers. For God's justice is not like our justice. It's perfect. It's complete. It's all-knowing. It's all-encompassing. And you know what? On our own, none of us will survive it. On my own, I would not survive it. For we are all guilty. We all fall short of God's standards. All of us have rebelled against God's loving rule. All of us have a stake in the messed-up world that we live in. We are each guilty. Which puts us in a really difficult position, doesn't it? Because we seem to know instinctively that things are not right. We instinctively, instinctively know that pain and suffering are, are wrong. And we, we cry out to God to act. We want him to do something. But we want his clean-up campaign to stop just short of us. We want to be part of that, that renewed 
creation, but we do not want to be condemned by his judgment. We're in a difficult spot. It can seem hopeless. You know, the big question, God's so good, why is there so much bad? That can badly backfire on us. And so I want to share with you a really incredible truth from the Bible. Let me share with you just how good God is in dealing with the bad of this world. Because according to the Bible, there really is hope beyond suffering. Because at a particular moment in time, at a particular point in history, at a particular place on this planet, you know what? God stepped into it. God entered into it. That is stunning. The eternal God, the holy God, the perfect God actually entered into this messed up world, our messed up world. If, if this world were a car accident on the road, God would not be among those who are looking on. God would be the one rushing in to help, prepared to get dirty and bloody, prepared to risk everything to help the trapped and the wounded. That's what God is like. God entered into our messed up world to bring help. You know what? Those few sentences I've just said would be utter blasphemy to a Muslim believer. According to Islam, Allah is the unmoved mover who affects all creation but has never affected himself. But the God of the Bible is the deeply moved mover. As incredible as it seems, and it is incredible, in the person of the man Jesus, God took on human flesh. God walked upon the earth. We've seen in his authority of Jesus, the power of Jesus to control nature and heal disease, his power over evil. We've seen in the wisdom of Jesus, in his teaching. And you can read about it for yourself in this biography of Jesus that I'll mention later that are here for you to take if you would like to. God experienced firsthand, close up, the suffering and the pain of this world. He suffered loss. He suffered grief. He suffered injustice. He suffered mockery. He suffered pain. God suffered. He knows what it's like to suffer. God, too, has been wounded by this world. And he is well able to sympathize with us. But more than that, more than that, God in his goodness has mercifully opened up a way for undeserving people, guilty people, to be able to enjoy that renewed, pain-free new creation. Because Jesus not only entered the world, he gave up his life in this world. He allowed himself to be killed, to be crucified. And in his death, he offered himself as a substitute He stood in the place of his people and bore the judgment of God on their sins ahead of that final judgment day. So that when that final judgment day rolls around, the people of Jesus will have nothing left to face themselves because it's all been dealt with. And for the people of Jesus on that last day, the books will be opened, but next to their name, there will be no condemnation found there. And they will freely enter into that renewed, pain-free new creation, and they will enjoy life eternally. That's an incredible truth. Despite our guilt, God makes a way possible for people like me and you to enjoy the new creation. It's a wonderful hope, and it doesn't depend on our performance, on how good we are, on how religious we are. It is all about God's mercy, God's generosity, God's love. And you know what? You think that sounds too good to be true. Well, God guarantees all of this in the resurrection 
of Jesus. And we can see that in the bit of the Bible that was read for us earlier. You might be wondering when we're going to get to it. Here we are. Because you know what? Three days after his saving, sin-bearing death, Jesus was alive. And that's the bit that Helen read for us earlier. Jesus was alive and he, he stood among his disciples. And he said to them, remember what he said? Peace. And Luke tells us that the disciples were startled and frightened. And that's the understatement of the world, surely. Three days dead people don't rise again. Because we know the way this world works. Death is final. But remember what we read? Jesus showed them his hands and his feet, evidences of his suffering. And Luke has that great line, it's about four lines down, I think. The disciples still did not believe because of joy and amazement. It's such a great line. They didn't believe because they were so overjoyed and amazed. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus is incredible and it is incredibly important. Because you see, because it's true, death is no longer final. With the resurrection of Jesus, life has arrived. The life of that future new creation in the resurrection of Jesus has invaded this old order. The resurrected Jesus is like the first fruits, the first taste of that new creation. This old creation is marked by suffering and death, but in the resurrection of Jesus, God has brought new life. The bodily resurrection of Jesus is God's guarantee It's his promise that what he has done in Jesus, he will do for the whole creation and for every single person who belongs to Jesus. It's his guarantee. There is hope in suffering. And because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Bible says there is also now safety in suffering. Did you notice in that Bible bit that we had read for us what Jesus said has got to happen next beyond his resurrection? Standing in the bottom, I've put it on the screen. Jesus said to his disciples, he had suffered, he had risen. And so now, can you see it? Jesus said, now repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be preached throughout the world. Repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be preached throughout the world. It's been happening for the last 2,000 years or so. Because you know what? The death and resurrection of Jesus is like a lifeboat floating on stormy seas. The resurrection and the death of Jesus is like a lifeboat floating on stormy seas. And it's the only lifeboat floating on the stormy seas of a world that is desperately groaning. And the risen Jesus invites everyone throughout the whole world, even in this room, to take shelter from the storm in the boat. It's what he means by commanding that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be preached everywhere. He wants everyone to know that there is hope in suffering, He wants everyone to know that there is safety available from that coming day of judgment, but it can only be found by trusting in Jesus, by trusting in his death in your place. That's the only way that you can enter the lifeboat. Right back at the very beginning of this morning, I suggest that an all-powerful, all-loving God might have a reason for allowing suffering and evil to continue, remember? And the Bible tells us, you know what the reason is? Mercy, patience, because God wants to give people, even like us, time to get into the boat of Jesus' death and resurrection. He wants to give you time to seek shelter. And please notice that if you do, 
if you renounce trying to live life your own way, if you entrust yourself to Jesus and his loving rule, please notice that for a time you will not escape the groaning of creation. You'll still experience suffering and grief and sadness and disease and injustice and bad because you can see the lifeboat is still tossed around by the stormy seas. But God promises to keep you safe in this old creation and to deliver you safely to the new. And God promises that even now your sufferings now, even those he will use for your good to make you ready for that fantastic future. And he promises that you will be safe in his final judgment day when evil and suffering will come to an end. Friends, there's so much bad in this world. But God is good. He is very good. And I want to invite you to keep searching out some of the wonderful Bible truths that I've tried to point you towards today. And to help you in that task... Down the front here on this table are are things you might like to to grab. They're all free. Like I said, there's a copy of the biography of Jesus taken straight out of the Bible but made into a nice little book that's easy to carry around uh, called The Essential Jesus. You can even download it and listen to it for yourself. The details are on the uh, outline there. There are some leaflets here explaining the message at the heart of the Bible, the good news at the heart of the Bible. We love to run short informal courses here at DPC to help people just investigate the truth about Jesus and Christianity. If you're interested in that, there's a sign-on sheet down here. Please put your name and details. We'll get in touch. There are some additional resources listed on the, on the sheet. There's a fantastic book called If I Were God, I'd End All the Pain by John Dixon, and the details are there. That's a terrific read. I want to urge you to keep thinking about because these are big questions, and we want to get the answers right. But you know what? It might even be that today, right now, right now you would like to take shelter in the lifeboat of Jesus' death and resurrection. It might be that right now you'd like to put your trust in Jesus. You might want to jump into the boat. And if that's true, you know what? It's so generous of God, it's simply a matter of pleading to him for mercy and asking for his help. And you can find hope in the promises of God that he makes in the Bible that we've been thinking about together today. It's a big decision, but it's a really important one. And if you'd like to jump into the boat, I'm going to pray a very simple prayer from out here that you might want to make your own to God. The words of it are on the screen behind me. I'll give you a chance to read them to see if you know they match what you're thinking, match your conviction. I'm going to pray the words. They're not magical words. They're just words. But if they express the truth of your heart, you pray them to God. He's going to hear it. He's going to answer. It might be you're not ready for that. Why don't you just ask while I'm praying at the front. God can hear lots of people at the one time. Why don't you just pray and ask God, I just want to be clear about this stuff. Can you help me? If you'd like to jump in the boat, pray these words with me. Let's pray. Lord God, please help me. I'm weary of the pain and the suffering and the evil. I admit my part in it all and I'm sorry. Thank you for entering into our painful worlds. Thank you that Jesus died for my sins. 
Thank you that Jesus rose again as the first fruits of the new creation. Please forgive me and save me and help me. Help me to follow Jesus as my Saviour King. Amen.